0: Good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for Wednesday, March 24th, 2021, we're gonna be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. It's obviously a very interesting time on US college campuses with many still in the throes of hybrid or completely online learning and looking forward to the to the fall term where we may be returning to more of a semblance of normal and what that might look like back on college campuses whether there will be still some vestiges of hybrid learning that will be maintained after uh, return to normal is achieved but we'll get to that in a few more minutes uh, and over the coming weeks and months but before we do for those who are not familiar with the roundup each week we look at the news stories that have piled up over the last few days And we look for themes, uh, themes in some of the story lists that we see repeated or uh, in different news stories. And we each week look at our newsletter that comes out on Mondays. That's the All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And if you're wondering what SMIE means, it's Social Media and International Education. That's uh, the name of the company, SMIE Consulting. And that's how we design all of our our efforts to uh, bring those two worlds together in looking at the news stories that are impacting what we do on university campuses in international education and the implications for us moving forward. So our newsletter that comes out on Monday Uh, 9 o'clock every morning, uh, every Monday morning, uh, in your inbox free of charge. If you'd like to subscribe, and if you aren't already, go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Enter your email address and a couple other pieces of information. We'll get you the next newsletter. Until then, we'll drop the link to this week's edition of the newsletter into the comments section on the Facebook page. For those watching live on Facebook, thanks so much for being a part of the journey each week. We're uh, really glad to have your uh, feedback here on the Roundup uh, live, but also uh, look forward to those of you who watch on repeat, uh, either on Facebook or on our YouTube channel, and those obviously that make us a part of your listening week on podcasts uh, by downloading us and subscribing to our podcast. We appreciate that, and uh, you add a lot of value to what we do here at SMIE Consulting. So let's jump right in. Uh, first question of the day, uh, of the week, is what needs to happen to reopen U.S. consulates. Now, this is a big deal. We've we've talked about this uh, at many points over the last year since the pandemic forced U.S. consulates and embassies worldwide to shut down operations. Uh, We saw, beginning over the summer last year, we saw some of those consulates begin to open up their doors again. Uh, Initially, it was for emergency appointments only, uh, and for students that were looking to start in the fall, that meant going emergency uh, for an emergency appointment uh, usually only within a month of the uh, start date on your I-20s. Whereas normally uh, students can apply up to four months uh, before uh, before their start date, so that pushes many students back to May uh, to start applying for their visas uh and, and last summer it was chaos uh 90 percent of u.s consulates and embassies around the world were still closed during peak visa season from june july and august and that meant those students that even had i-20s were ready to come could didn't have the opportunity to apply for a visa to come some couldn't come as new students because their campuses were fully online and that wasn't allowed by dhs regulations others simply couldn't get a visa appointment because consulates and embassies were closed. And you look at what's happening now. You've had uh, 40,000 students or so as of uh, the fall IIE snapshot survey from from 700 top institutions that enrolled international students. They indicated about 40,000 students have deferred. Uh, that uh, were deciding to come next year or fall 2021. You had another set of about 20% of enrolled international students that ended up on campus this fall that uh, th- that enrolled in universities, but did not come to campus. They've been studying remotely from the home country for the last year, uh, for the last eight months or so. Uh, those students will be hoping to come to campus finally uh, to get that on-campus experience and That's ideally what they're paying for uh, in the end. Uh, And then you all have all these new students that are going to be, have been applying this year in record, well, in increased numbers this year compared to uh, 2020 and are going to also be applying for visas. And if you get to a situation this summer where embassies and consulates are still primarily closed, over half of them are still closed, probably like 60% or so worldwide, including the top consulates in, in China and India, our top two sending countries, which have remained virtually closed. Uh, you are gonna run into a situation where you have almost the equivalent of two years of students, international students from, from peak countries, that are looking to send their students here to the United States that are going to be applying for student visas. And if it's emergency only, there's no chance on God's green earth that all those students are going to be able to get appointments in time and to come to uh, begin studies this coming fall. It's just not going to happen. So as a result, what's happened, uh, we've talked a couple news stories about this over the last month or so. Uh, we've had, as has been the case over the last uh, last few months, uh, ACE, uh, the uh, American Council on Education, uh, served as sort of the umbrella, uh, kind of head- higher ed association for 30, 30 plus, up to 40 other associations, inter- international, many of them international ed associations or associations that have strong international components. They've been, uh, they've been putting together various letters addressing some of the things that they would like to see happen in the coming months to help smooth the way. Uh, for uh, an international education renaissance here in the United States, after what we've been through the last four years, and this letter, the most recent letter, is sent jointly to Secretary Blinken at the Department of State and Secretary Mayorkas at uh, DHS. And the gist of this message, uh, this message, of uh, this uh, this letter to from all these associations to the two secretaries involved in. Uh, visa policy, uh, either initial visas or current status visas for international students, make the case that uh, March and April are critical months for the processing of visas uh, for the fall semester, and that uh, students are making their choices as to where to go, uh, where, they're, where they're going to study, uh, find, make their final decisions as to where they're going to study, and that process starts in April, they've been admitted, then now They now they need to get all their financial documents in so that institutions can issue the I-20s that they'll then need to go for and apply for those visas. So uh, what what this letter is prompting and something we've certainly been talking about here that we need in order for fall 2021 to be what it should be, and that is a, a banner year in terms of oh, compared to the last four uh, in terms of new, new international students coming in. Now, state and DHS are the ones that are going to be most directly involved in this. State, obviously, are the places, uh, state departments, consulates, and embassies overseas. That's where those visas get issued uh, for initial uh, I-20s and renewal, visa renewals. They've addressed the visa renewal process. uh, And in many countries, the in-person interview is no longer required due to the pandemic. So that's one positive step for students who need to renew their visas. Now, that will hopefully decrease the backlog of, uh, of interview requests at the embassies and consulates themselves. But you have the issues of uh, new students that will be applying to embassies and consulates that are still largely closed. So the push uh, that is made in this letter is, first, the State Department and Homeland Security can ensure the timely, efficient processing of visa applicants and work authorizations for international students and scholars, and that also means prioritizing for DHS uh, work authorizations for OPT uh, and that um, the challenge is both State Department consulates out in the field in terms of visa fees that they charge are what they use to budget for the next year uh, in terms of staffing and all those things. Uh, they've obviously taken big hits. Same thing with DHS because the numbers have been down. Uh, not certainly for OPT filing fees and all that; those numbers have actually gone up. But uh, for DH Department of State in particular, because they're so dependent and they're cost um, self-sustaining or cost, uh, there's no budget for these uh, for these operations for consular affairs to have uh, certain staffing at every embassy and consulate that they use the money that they bring in from visa fees to pay for those things. And DHS likewise, SEVIS fees pay for SEVIS. And because numbers have been down last year and potentially again this year, that it has impacted staffing to process applications at CIS. Uh, so a lot of other f- multiple factors that have combined for a perfect storm in terms of what could happen again this fall uh, when it comes to visas. So the we're talking about uh, assurances. One of the other things the letter is asking for uh, is that uh, there are uh, waiving opportunity, waiving the uh, in-person interviews also for new students, and that's a, probably a security question that uh, will be a bridge too far for most in uh, in the State Department. Uh, that. Uh, that the, the secretary does have the authority Secretary of State does have the authority to waive that in-person interview if it is if the waiver is in quote unquote the national interest of the United States or is necessary as a result of our un- unusual or emergent circumstances so uh, they would a- they're asking for a waiver of this uh, the visa in-person visa r- requirement uh, that Uh, would not, uh, certainly would be in the national interest and would not be necessary. Uh, So they're they're making a a strong case there. And frankly, if an in-person interview is not required, that would certainly make uh, the the administrative burden uh, much simpler on the consulates and embassies uh, to allow that. Um, In talking to colleagues who work at state, have been overseas at posts, talking about what, I asked why, why embassies and consulates in China and India aren't opening yet, uh, and he seemed to think it wasn't it certainly wasn't going to be in t- pressures on um, on the on control on who gets access to embassies and consulates from from the host country like India or China. It was more in terms of in China it may be a, a matter of staffing that. Uh, embassy and consul officials haven't been allowed back into the country uh, to re- resume their duties, so they haven't don't have these embassies and consuls staffed enough yet, or haven't been allowed to staff them, because uh, the, those that w- people that we send out to work in other in other countries uh, at our U.S. consuls and embassies are are only allowed in at the invitation of the government, uh, the host government. And if that's not happening in China, uh, that they're not letting our, our embassy staff back in unless they were to go to um, uh, a quarantine center, uh, and uh, uh, many <laughs> colleagues have, uh, uh, that was a no-go. Uh, a China, a Chinese government-run quarantine center, that was a no-go for, I think that was one of the things that was proposed earlier on. Uh, that was certainly not going to happen from a U.S. perspective, and you can read into that at what you want, what you will, uh, certainly uh, uh, that kind of breach of protocol, uh, in the interest of um, protection of uh, "quote unquote" health and safety, uh, wasn't going to be tolerated from the U.S. perspective. So there may be still some bureaucratic wrangling that needs to be done there to allow our staff back into China to um, to staff those embassies and consulates uh, fully, so that they can resume routine visa services. If you look in India, I'm not sure what the case is there. They're obviously in Hyderabad. Uh, they're going to be building a brand new consulate there. That's going to have, I think, triple the number of windows that they have for visa interviews. So they're ramping up staffing wise. Not going to be ready for this fall, but maybe, maybe late in the late in the summer, it might be. But that there's some real uh, concrete issues that are prohibiting. Uh, reopening of consulates and embassies, so we're not sure what they are. It's maybe different in every country, but certainly our entry and availability of U.S. consulate staff in those countries to manage, to run the visa services that they need to, that's probably one of the major factors that is prohibiting a a full Full expansion to where we need to be. Now, you look at our visa process compared to other countries' the study permit process in Canada, uh, which is still has its some bureaucratic ch- challenges. But the British system and the Australian system is, and even New Zealand, are much more streamlined. Uh, for British British farms out their visa processing to a third party. Uh, third-party company. They don't require the in-person interviews. So these are things that other countries will have a distinct advantage of us and certainly that's what happened with the UK this fall. They had, because they weren't requiring the in-person interviews that had this third party doing their pro- visa processing, they were able to get students in-country uh, and that in much larger numbers than we were able to do here in the United States. So that's a, that's a big big deal. So we'll see where, where, where this letter goes from ACE uh, to uh, if it impacts uh, and moves uh, DHS and, and state off their, off, their, uh, off their perches a little bit and gets them uh, into the weeds here and dealing with a lot of these issues that need to be sorted out uh, right away if we're going to have a fall that is what we hope it should be. Now, that's, that's it for our first question. There'll be more on that, I'm sure, as we, as we go through the, the next couple of months that will become mission critical to see if the fall re- is even gonna be realistic to get in the number of students we need to get in. Uh, but let's shift gears to kind of the front end of the admissions process, which is related to um, a new scandal that we talked a little bit about uh, over the last week or so. Uh, there's another, uh, a latest admission scandal that has an international twist to it. And it, will that latest admission scandal, international style, change us? And I say this, uh, ch- well, will it change us for a number of reasons. Uh, you look at what happened with Varsity Blues and certainly domestic admissions offices took the brunt of, uh, of the criticism on process and procedures uh, at US colleges and you know, how, that, how students get admitted and all of that. But you look at what, uh, th- this was: hap- these were students that were applying with uh, not necessarily fraudulent credentials, but certainly uh, uh, well-enhanced resumes or CVs of um, of their um, activities that they were involved in, and having uh, high high-paid uh, admissions consultants get greasing the wheels for them at certain institutions to get them in. Uh, and just kind of paper over the cracks of what was what was really uh, a challenge, or what was really dishonest about that whole process. People have gone to jail. There's a new Netflix documentary that's uh, that's that's uh, coming out soon on this Varsity Blues scandal, on the domestic side because there were Hol- it was so Hollywood that there were uh, there, there were Hollywood actors involved in the in the process in terms of the cover-ups involved. Uh, but what we were this one uh, that we're talking about here. Two, uh, two individuals in Southern California uh, were basically international students paying them uh, for help on, for help, help, help in air quotes, on everything uh, that uh, they were paying for guaranteed admissions in the eyes of uh, certainly the, the people, uh, the parents of these students. And uh, in return, the services they received, essays, doctor transcripts, uh, Or of high school or college records. Someone else took their TOEFL exam or SAT exams uh, and helped with their visa applications. Uh, So the result, there were 19 uh, students that were paid thousands of dollars and were admitted to top universities, Boston College, Boston University, Columbia, New York University. Orange Coast Community College, maybe not top school, but University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, USC, and UC campuses at Irvine and Riverside. So, a lot of some of these universities were also part of uh, Varsity Blues. So, uh, what this is, what we're talking about here is, uh, is these the lengths to which these students uh, paid the, for the services that guaranteed them getting in. Uh, to, uh, to these top schools uh, goes above and beyond, frankly, what a, a lot of the Varsity Blues uh, individual students uh, uh, purported to have in their backgrounds that got them admitted. It was more the money greasing the wheels that got those students in, not necessarily these two individuals uh, that um, in California that basically did the work, had others do the work for the students and presented as, as the individual student's work. So uh, most students are not, most of the colleges involved certainly aren't uh, talking about, the, about the, this, the different issues involved for legal reasons, obviously. Um, but we're, what, I'm, what I'm fairly confident in saying is this could be just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, th- there have been times in my career uh, when I, I, my spidey senses were going off when things didn't match up necessarily and we out stu- call out students if we thought there was something missing. Uh, so I certainly wasn't always at a top tier school where that might be happening, but you could tell. Uh, there was a, st- a time where in mid, uh, I think it was probably 2000, uh, 2004, 2006, somewhere in that range, 2008, where I was doing application reading for, um, for a college and uh, a more selective college. And there was one year, this second year I was doing it, they had uh, just a swathe of applications from, uh, from Nanjing in China. And uh, there were transcript issues I saw, there were essay issues, uh, extracurricular issues I saw with a couple, with, with, with at least three or four transcripts from that school where actually I, I was seeing just as one admissions reader. Uh, international admissions reader, that I, I, I raised issues with the staff, and they said, well, uh, we're, we're not really we don't we don't have the resources to really follow up on these, so we're not going to do it. So, but it was it became very clear to me after a year or two later. I hear stories about this particular school from colleagues who work in China. That uh, yeah, it's, they 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 have agents that run students there, and those that these agents will do everything for those students. Prepare uh, doctor transcripts, uh, phony transcripts, and stu- other students will take their SATs and, and TOEFL exams. So that that was that's always been there uh, to have this kind of level of um, uh, duplicity being pulled off um, fairly easily. Uh, with, uh, with these institutions, points to a couple things uh, that I see as challenges for admissions, international admissions offices in particular, is one, knowledge of the education systems and protocols and expectations in different countries. And second, having credential evaluation services, uh, either that you have in-house, or that you farm out to uh, third parties uh, for whether it's an ECE, whether it's a WES, or other service providers that do this, uh, are your are you confident that the transcripts you get, that the test scores you get, uh, and some of the, some of the te- some of the test authenticity issues are certainly not on the institutions, but are, will certainly be on the testing companies that uh, allowed students who are not the people who are on the registration papers to actually take the tests uh, for, uh, for, for, for them. So test security is, has been an issue for, for many years, but uh, that's something that uh, certainly College Board's dealt with, ETS has dealt with uh, in the United States here. But other companies, IELTS around the world deals with this too, and how do you verify, trans- verify the authenticity of the individual that's taking the test is the name on the paper. So this is something that uh, will continue to be an issue, but uh, being able to verify and the time that's needed to do that properly uh, in a system that is geared towards churning out decisions that is, is uh, geared towards uh, uh, reading seasons that are, are, are more concerned with other things in the application than what's on the transcript necessarily. Uh, in, all, in all circumstances, if the GPAs are high enough, they're not going to really question it, uh, even though there may be very strong reasons why it should be questioned. So I think there's a lot that needs to happen in this area. And the two links I'm, I'll be posting to the uh, Facebook page for these are uh, one is a, uh, inside her, an Inside Higher Ed article about this new admission scandal, and the second is the actual indictment uh, that uh, is uh, for the, from the Central District of California. So it's a federal issue, and one of the one of the things that the that is involved here because it's federal, uh, it's alleges visa fraud uh, that used surrogate test takers and guaranteed foreign student admissions uh, into colleges. So uh, this is, um, this is a, something that's gonna have some legs, I think, because this could be just the tip of the iceberg. I'm, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, I'm not surprised this is happening. And when oh, Varsity Blues first broke uh, a couple of years ago now almost, uh, you, I made the, made, the, made the statement then that I, I, I certainly think is, is validated now that Um, That internationally there's things far worse than what happened in Varsity Blues uh, that are happening internationally uh, in terms of the admissions process and how students get in to uh, colleges and universities because it's it's just such a more complex world and a less known world for most universities and colleges that uh, spend the time to evaluate student applications. So we'll see where this goes but I'm certainly um, thinking that this will have some significant legs uh, down the road uh, for as, as, certainly as far as U.S. colleges uh, adjust their admissions policies and such. So we'll see what happens with that we'll certainly keep you posted on it. Final question of the day, can intensive English programs bounce back? Now for my colleagues here in the United States, you, my heart goes out to you because I know how much you've struggled whether you're a campus-based intensive English program or you're standalone, uh, you've had to scramble like crazy, not only the last four years, but in particular since the pandemic struck. Your life has been a living hell. Uh, On on many of your schools, uh, there's been such dramatic uh, drops that was happening even before the pandemic, uh, with the drops in Brazilian and Saudi scholarship students that normally fill, that had been filling your classrooms for four or five years or more. Uh, but the, when those go away, you need to replace those with all the sources, so are, did you move into more immigrant uh, uh, opportunities? Uh, uh, for those that are campus-based, uh, did you have uh, even the opportunity to do any of that? Uh, in, in terms of your, your clientele, in terms of who you could reach out to, partnerships you could make, all of those. The one thing that is uh, has been a challenge, I think, in some countries, and the two that I'll profile are Australia and the UK, since I haven't seen relevant data for US uh, English language programs recently. But uh, the English language programs in Australia, you see they're at, they're at a 14-year low in 2020. They had a year-on-year fall of forty-three point three percent in terms of enrollments, and that's only because of uh, continuing students that were already there, just had just begun, just gotten in recently before the uh, borders closed. uh, That they're at their their lowest stage. That um, you see um, visa 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 requests were down seventy-four percent, seven point seventy-four point six percent for English study uh... in australia uh, last year uh... you see just drops across the board and that's uh... that's significant and doesn't look like there's any uh, light at the end of the tunnel for this yet uh... just because it's such a uh, a fluid situation but in australia with the reluctance to reopen uh... anytime soon uh... you see uh... unless these individuals were already in the country they weren't getting visas to come uh... even if they could travel and get in they weren't they weren't going to be able to get in uh, that what you see obviously universities have able to been able to save some of their new students that they were expecting last fall to still enroll uh, they were able to do that because the, they had the option for online uh, courses English, uh, online courses for their for, towards degrees but for English language programs it's a much different dynamic and it's uh, to do this um, to teach ESL uh, virtually is not uh, the same, uh, not nearly the same as it is in person uh, and in some cases it wasn't even allowed uh, for students to do virtual English language classes uh, in some of these countries in Australia and I think the UK might be uh, also in this boat. So what we're the, in the UK we saw a loss at English language teaching centers, a uh, loss of 590 million pounds 91 uh, percent of employees have been affected at English language training teaching centers. Half have lost their jobs. So a lot of that um, a lot of the job job or a lot of those affected, 91 percent of people in the English language program had their jobs negatively affected uh, last year and over half losing their jobs. So uh, I would say the numbers in the US would be had to, would have to be comparable to that uh... in terms of uh, significant job loss and as well as uh... closing of programs even so this is uh... something that is a real challenge for english language programs and you gotta you gotta hope that when the borders reopen uh... that there will be opportunities uh, to come i know in the u.s. there was already concerns that english language programs weren't getting uh the opportunities that uh, they would in other countries like in Canada or the U- UK or Australia uh, because the, the way the visas were were processed for English language only uh, unless it had previously if it, unless if it didn't have a government scholarship attached to it there wasn't a very strong likelihood from certain countries of students getting in for just English language even though they might be conditionally admitted to a university for degree studies that, Because they can't be issued an I-20 for both, they can only have uh, an admission letter or an I-20 for the English language program if they don't, if they're not fully accepted into a degree program. So that that's going to be something to keep an eye on. But I do think it's uh, one that will have uh, some has already had a devastating impact on the field, frankly. And I I don't uh, I don't see until borders reopen that changing. But certainly. um, with uh, expansion of immigrant communities into the United States uh, from, uh, from our, uh, through our southern borders recently. Maybe there's opportunities there. Uh, certainly, um, other immigrant groups that will be coming in, more refugees will be coming in this year because of changes in policy, reversing the Trump policies on, on as, as, asylees and immigrants. So I think there's going to be more of that, more opportunities there. Uh, on the student front, uh, degree seeking and student front, pre-university de- uh, ESL programs, uh, it's going to be a struggle uh, for, for some time, I'm, I'm afraid. But uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll stay positive as, mo- as long as we can. And, uh, you know, uh, if you're in, in the IEP programs, uh, you are in my heart. And uh, certainly uh, understand where you're coming from on those things. So that's what we have for you this week on the Roundup. I do wish you all the best of luck in the coming days as we're into spring and the weather starts turning warmer, warmer and we're looking to get out more for those who are already getting their vaccines, their first and second shots, uh, congratulations on those. Hopefully there will be a return to normal for, for you sooner rather than later. And we'll certainly keep, keep you abreast of all the different impacts uh, our changing world is having on our field. So until next time, we wish you the best of luck and have a wonderful day. Cheers.